Hi, I'm Joy Latikun, and this is the LSQ Podcast. Hey, hey, it's Jenny LSQ. Thanks for checking out this episode of the LSQ Podcast with singer-songwriter Joy Olatikun, and it really was a joy, if you'll pardon the pun, to get to know them a bit better via this conversation. Their latest album, Proof of Life, their fourth studio LP, has been one of my favorites of this year, and they've been on the road nonstop, including doing many dates with Vermont singer-songwriter Noah Kahn as Joy and Noah guest on one another's latest albums. You'll hear us talk a bit about that, but also, of course, I wanted to delve in with Joy to their earliest creative experiences and, and how they first got into making music. Joy is on tour right now in the U.S. You can get tickets at joyolatacoon.com. Let's go. Hello. Hello. Are you at home? I am. I am finally in Nashville after a month of, of gallivanting around the country. Yeah, I mean, I uh, am well-versed in your tour schedule because uh, I introduce your songs a lot on the radio and I'm always looking up where you are. Um, So I can say with some authority that I know you've been on tour pretty much nonstop, like this entire year. Of course, Proof of Life came out in the spring, so there was, but there were dates leading up to it. I mean, when's the last time you were home for a while? Right now. (laughs) yeah Yeah, I think uh, I'm home for most of the fall um and I think that that is like I think I sort of had an idea going into this year that like with a record coming out and like I don't know some of the things that I have like going on as a human that like this year is going to be busy and hopefully next year will be a little bit of a slowdown and like bask in sort of the significance of it in a different way um and so I've been sort of emotionally prepared uh for this entire stretch and I'm almost done which feels really cool to like as someone who didn't think they like touring when I first started like to be at a place where I can like comfortably spend a month on the road and be like okay like I did that and you know I feel okay and human and I'm back to see my dog and I'll do a couple more weeks and it'll be over Tell me about what you remember of your very first tour. Oh, my very first tour. Mm. I guess it depends on, there are a couple versions. Like in 2016, I self-released this album called Carrie. And for some reason in like the UK, people heard it and sort of liked it. And I got invited to do a festival and I met like, you know, sort of like, a friend who was like, I could help you maybe book some gigs. And so I sort of by myself took trains across the UK to play these little gigs. And that was, that is honestly my first three to four years of touring. A lot of it is just like me on trains or like in, I used to drive myself in my Jeep across America, you know, like uh, listening to music and podcasts and just the audiobooks and just sort of, going from gig to gig and playing solo acoustic and it's really interesting because now I don't I don't do that I don't drive myself to the gig anymore and it's really that's I'm I'm relieved (laughs) I'm relieved to hear that sometimes people have to convince me otherwise like if I'm if it's a short drive I'm like I can't just like rent a truck and meet you there like 
literally no. <laughs> well, you know, I'm I'm imagining that that very first tour in the UK, there was, you know, undoubtedly a level of excitement about that, you know, but you mentioned sort of like you, you didn't love touring when you first when you first started doing it. What have you kind of figured out about what your life needs to be when you're on tour that makes it more harmonious now? Yeah, I think I I stopped calling myself a homebody and started like acknowledging that as a person, I just really enjoy rhythm. And that's what home offers is like, I know where everything is, you know, the bananas are on the counter, you know, I like, I know when the sheets were last cleaned, like there's no mystery. Uh, it's, it's, it's my place. Um, but what touring does is like, you have to basically create your own sense of place in a different place every day. And when I first started, like, I just like, I was a baby learning to walk. Like I just, I didn't know little things. Like I travel with a lot of incense now because like that's important to me, you know? And I always like have like gum and sparkling water and like just like little things. That, bring like, your own, bring your own bananas to put them on the counter wherever you are. You're just like, look, the bananas are on the counter. It's fine. Yes. No, they're like <laughs> on our last touring vehicle, there was like a little fruit bowl <laughs> next to the Keurig. It's like I get, I got like, I, drink maple coffee and I have a banana and that's part of the part of the deal you know Ooh, maple coffee wait tell me a little more about that you know I made some white friends from Vermont (laughs) (laughs) and uh, as one does I honestly I I don't know what to call them Vermonters Vermontians I I love them I like I don't know who told them that maple syrup goes into coffee I'm assuming it was like a the Canadians, like it's one of those things where it's like a, like a cultural trade. But yeah, when I was on tour with like Noah and his crew, there were some people from Vermont that were like swore by maple coffee. And I usually don't sweeten my coffee, but I was wrong. I was wrong. It's delicious. Mentioning Vermont and, and Noah, that reminds me, yeah, a bunch of the touring you've been doing this year was with him in the earlier part of the year. And that's a great synchronicity because each of you sings on a song on the other's album. And We're All Gonna Die, the song on Proof of Life that Noah guests on. What a great tune. I mean, I just want to say also, like, I really love that the whole album is awesome. And it's been one of my favorites of this year. And that song has a quality that I love that is its directness, you know, in the title, in the message. And that's one of the things that I admire about you and just observing uh, what you share. I know, you know, but social platforms are toxic spaces yeah. often, but I, whenever I've seen your posts, they've brought me enjoyment because you're uh, a person who acknowledges like life is fleeting and we're all going to die has that spirit in it. And I'm curious about kind of if you reached a point where you decided that you wanted to just say what you really mean as as an artist and really rather than going for elaborate metaphors, which, you know, can be a defense mechanism to just say sort of the core truth. Honestly, I don't know when the deciding point of me wanting to be direct, both lyrically and a human started and like I you know we grow every day I I don't even say that I'm perfect at it now but I think one of the reasons I grew up I grew up religious I grew up in the church um like in the Christian church and one of the reasons that I was I left was because I felt like people were always talking around what the issues were or talking around what their issues were 
And so it's like, why am I in a room full of people claiming to be vulnerable, but I'm the only one that like feels like a mess, you know? And I think for me, the clarity in being like, you know, uh, I want to talk about death. So I'm going to say, we're all going to die, you know? And like, what does that mean? You know, or, you know, I want to talk about racial tensions in America, you know? So I'm going to challenge people to think that maybe like, a prisoner is just as valid of a human as they are, you know? And I don't know. I I think that for me, life is short enough that I just felt such a deep dissatisfaction when I didn't just tell people what I wanted. And then I feel like that translated to my writing because I was like, I wanted to become an artist because I was hearing music that I didn't super relate to. So I, like, I was like, maybe what makes it relatable is just getting to the heart of the issue, both the good and the bad. And I don't know. I don't know if it's working. I have a, I have a really, I have a terrible self-assessment of what's happening right now. I'm sure that'll come with a vacation. Um, <laughs> I just, I think for me, it's like, I don't, all my favorite songwriters are so direct and all my favorite writers use like, I'm not going to say two words when they could use 10, but they use like seven instead of 10 and five instead of 10. Like editing is just as valuable as anything else. And I think being able to confront my mortality by sort of like playing in its face is a, is a way to do that. Yeah. um, I mean, did you feel like there was a point in your sort of catalog that's kind of before that and after that, or were you, were you looking at it that way when you first started making you know, recording your songs? No, I honestly think music has been like this guiding force for Joy the Human to become more direct. Like when I first picked up a guitar, I was a very, like I was a shy 10-year-old kid. I was one of the only like black kids, queer kids in my class, one of the only Nigerians in town. And like music was a lifeline. Like it was the way I related to my dad. It was the way I related to my friends at school. And I think in my writing from the onset, you can see a clarity in communication that I don't feel like I've always had as a person. And I think that's because for me, you know, watching a Tracy Chapman video for some reason clicked in my brain that like I can tell people how I feel this way. And I just started exercising that muscle. And I think it wasn't until like, I honestly think like in defense of my own happiness, a lot of that music was about like my life and coming to terms with my queerness and with my journey and like, you know, with the things that I've lost and things that gained. And I think that period of like really reflecting on who I have been and who I wanted to be was when I'm like, oh, there's this strength in my work and in my writing voice that I want to bring to the table. And not to say that I don't know. I feel like I've always had a good moral compass, but I, my voice hasn't, like, sometimes your voice shakes, you know, or sometimes it, you know, it looks like quietly leaving something as opposed to flipping over a table. But um, I think now I've, I've gotten this confidence in being able to be like, I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but I'm uncomfortable with this. And I think that we should work through it. You, you referenced that moment, which I've read about of, of watching and watching this video and seeing Tracy Chapman perform and having this, this breakthrough moment of awareness. 
So tell me more about what led up to that and sort of the music that you were hearing and the things that were kind of starting to intrigue you and make you feel that kind of special feeling that music gives even before that. And, and, and a little more about, you know, what it was that impacted you so heavily in that moment. Yeah. And those tapes, because there were a bunch of tapes, huh, that your dad had. There were a bunch of tapes. My dad's like a bigger music fan than I am. I like, I feel really lucky in that. I think I'd put on threads earlier that like I became a, I became a musician so I could go to concerts for free or something, you know. My dad growing up, like there was always a record on or there was always like, we weren't allowed to watch TV Monday through Friday. So our reward on the weekends was either we could go to Blockbuster and rent a single movie, which was like 90 minutes. Or we could watch like hours and hours of music videos and concert footage that my dad had sort of archived and just like everything like King Sunny Ade, Paul Simon, Genesis, like the Rolling Stones. Like I just like anything that like sort of tickled his fancy. Kenny Rogers, my dad loves, loves Kenny Rogers still. Um, and the like Bob Marley, like Nina Simone, like my dad just like my both my parents have incredible taste. So growing up, I feel like music was just always around and I loved it. My whole family loves it. And then I think that moment of maybe seeing someone, I mean, that looks like me playing the acoustic guitar and I grew up in a farming town. So it's like outside of my house, you're seeing like people with Garth Brooks shirts on and like, you know, men in lifted trucks and all this different stuff like that. For me, it was almost like, I saw the instrument as a bridge and I saw, I saw Tracy Chapman as one end of the bridge, you know, and and, and as weird as that seems is like, as what we know of history, we know that like black people, people of African descent have so much to do with the foundations of folk music, but to a 10 year old kid who may be like capitalism is selling the opposite, seeing Tracy Chapman in that environment, solo acoustic, in a stadium was like, oh, I can do that. You know, like, like, it seems innocent, but it's like, I've only really seen white guys play guitar and like a, and you know, like there's a lot of like great Nigerian guitarists. So like I've seen lots of men play guitar, but not anyone like me. And so it sort of just cracked open this thing of like, whatever I need to figure out how to connect and to communicate, it seems to be in this package or in this, uh, even if it's just for myself in music, being able to like process and archive my feelings and my, my journey through what I could write down and sing. And so what did you do with that new knowledge from there? I mean, were, were, and did you feel like you were about to become an artist already sort of, because, you know, not everyone would see that. And even if they related to it, you know, they might not go pick up a guitar themselves. Yeah. No, it uh, it manifested in me begging my parents for a guitar every day until like the next Christmas. And I think it was like a good stretch. I think I like saw the video in spring and then like <laughs> annoyed my mom and dad until they were like, we'll get you a guitar. Um, it's sort of like when a kid finds a sport that they like, like I played soccer or in tennis, you know, growing up, like when someone like finds their stride or like, like, especially for me, I was a lonely, weird kid who like read too many books and watched too much Star Wars on the weekends. Like my parents were like maybe a little concerned that I wouldn't find a focus. And so even for me to like 
be like, I want to do this and to say it over a long term. And then when I get the guitar to like sit in my room and like do finger stretches and like, you know, focus and like research stuff on the internet. It was just a lifeline. I think I use that word that like bridge lifeline type language a lot because I think for a lot of people, I don't know, maybe being socially accepted is a given. And I think for me, I wasn't in the headspace of like, well, I'm going to become an artist, (laughs) you know, when I get this guitar. But I think there was a part of me that was like, I think I might be able to communicate some things that I like it. The parts of me that are scared to talk to people might be able to like be massaged out by playing music and like it and feeling my way through certain things. Um, And I feel really grateful for that instinct. And I'm very protective of it even still. So yeah, did it start, did it start to feel therapeutic once you, once you kind of knew what you were doing and, and was it really just a self-taught kind of experience at that point, just looking stuff up and learning chords and practicing? Yeah, definitely self-taught, still pretty self-taught. I try to like watch videos of great guitar players, like talking about technique, but I, I like, I don't, I've only taken like maybe four or five lessons in my lifetime, which is kind of crazy. Um, yeah, I just, I was, I had an appetite for just sort of like learning and understanding. And I think it, it was immediately therapeutic, just in the sense of it was something to do with my energy and my anxiety and my like hands. My first song was about Lord of the Rings. So it wasn't like the content was not inspiring by any means, you know, but I think for a restless, lonely kid, being able to sit in a room and do anything for more than 10 minutes was a miracle. And so to love something as much as I loved writing and playing and like discovering my voice and myself that way uh, was, it felt rare and it felt like something that I should like enjoy and steward. When did you start playing your songs for anyone else? Relatively early in my journey. Like if I started playing guitar at 10, maybe a year into it, like if my mom had a bad day at work, I would go in my room and I'd write her a little song and then I'd play it for her. Oh, joy. You know, or like (laughs) if my like a friend was going through like a breakup or like a weird thing, you know, in middle school or high school, you know, I'd write a song about like how hard things can make you a better person or something silly and I'd make a little mixtape and give it to them like it just uh they've always been like greeting cards to me songs they've been little notes that I share with people on a one-to-one basis and that's something that I try to keep even now that I'm there's like a few more than one people listening like I uh I try to keep the heart of it as like if I was sitting down with a friend and we were gonna have a bonfire how would I, how would I say this? Not how would I sing it? Not what production would I put around it? How would I talk to someone about this problem? Um, And I think it all stemmed from just that greeting card mentality when I first started writing music of like, I just want to help myself or help someone else deal with something or celebrate something or whatever. I wrote a lot of graduation songs, you know, like that type of stuff. (laughs) And so as you got into like, you know, adolescence and your early teens and were continuing to pursue it, what were some of the, 
like artists you were listening to that started to kind of shape your your music taste and and the music that you ended up you know starting to make i mean my teens were wild i grew up in the early aughts the early 2000s what was music and fashion then you know Uh, (laughs) i it's interesting i listened to like green day and the backstreet boys and bob marley in like equal measure like my my childhood bedroom was horrific i respect my parents so much for not redecorating it was painted at first it was modeled after harry potter like one of the covers of one of the books um and then i got into music so i put a bunch of music posters up so there's like there'd be a poster of paramore you know and then there's this big like picture of Bob Marley like shaking his hair you know holding it a Gibson SG and you know there'd be little cutouts from alternative press and like an insert from a Prince record like I sort of like started to wallpaper my room and like my little musical inspirations Um, but I also was like you know I got in trouble for downloading an Eminem song on LimeWire because my mom heard it you know um (laughs) And I like, you know, it was like the, it was like the, when hip hop became pop. So not only like, I grew up listening to like, you know, as a a kid, you know, especially a black kid, like grew up listening to Pac and Biggie, you know, Fat Joe and Ja Rule were like all of a sudden like (laughs) on the charts, like like a, a different, like it was like this weird world where like this thing that felt maybe underground or like a subculture in the early 2000s was becoming main culture. And so Anyway, my room was a mess and my inspiration board was a mess. But I think I just have always been someone who just like, if I, if I like it, I like it. And I don't really care if it's cool. Cause it's like, what does that, what does cool matter if I feel good? You referenced earlier that your favorite songwriters, you know, are having, have an economy of, of words and stuff like that. Who are some of those big, you know, big Titans for you? Peter Gabriel is one of my favorite songwriters. I think that he has like one, I, it's painted on one of my guitar cases from Mercy Street. All of the buildings and all of the cars were once just a dream in somebody's head. And that's like, that's not metaphor really. Like that's not like flowery, beautiful language, but it is so profound to say everything we see around us was somebody else's idea. And I, I just find Peter Gabriel to be really, really inspirational. Paul Simon, similarly. Nina Simone is maybe one of my favorite artists of all time. Just straight to the heart. I mean, Mississippi God, like, you, like just like being able to like it, <laughs> thinner man, like feeling good. Like I just like it. Supernatural is how I would describe Nina Simone. Um, and Bob Marley the same way. And like some of these things are linguistic, right? Like And that's what's so cool about music is like Bob Marley was a Rastafarian. So his approach to the English language was going to be different than anybody else, you know? And I don't know. I like writers who, who have their unique fingerprint. Yeah. Just in the, in the, in the words and the usage of them and the length. Like I like people who are short and sweet, but also beautiful, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that always blows my mind is where you're like, it's, yeah, it's that thing you were saying earlier about something that is simply stated, but it's also unique in a way. It's something that anyone can agree with or connect to, but there's a reason no one ever said it that way before. You know, it's because the person who just said it 
has a special way of saying it, you know? And it's like, that's yeah. the, the Venn diagram of like relatable and unique. Yeah, yeah. Is, seems like the, the, I mean, I don't write songs, I, but whenever I'm always blown away by those things. And I mean, so I'm always curious, like for you, a moment like that, a lyric that you're like, ah, that's a, that's a good one. That's a keeper. Do those, do those pop in on their own sometimes just like a phrase or a, a, a simile or a, you know, an observation that you're, do you keep a kind of reserve of things you're like, build on that. That's maybe something there. I'm actually maybe one of the, I don't want to say one of the few, I don't know a lot of people in Nashville specifically where I live that are like this. I don't have like a reserve of titles or lyrics on occasion. I'll have like a concept, but I like, I tend to think of songs as like, I just like to turn ideas around. And then when I feel like it's ready to be written, not even in a spooky way, but just like I've lived enough life and sort of like have enough language to put words and melody to it. I think it always shows up. And so I try not to, I try not to force anything too much. I'm, I'm not a writer's writer in that sense. Um, I try to, I honestly, like, I'm so inspired by life, you know, that like, that honestly, like people make fun of me a lot, like we'll be in the car and I'll like stop the radio and I'll like hum a verse melody and chorus into a thing. And I'll be like, I just wrote a song, you know, like, I think it's a, for me, it's like a natural part of life as opposed to, it's a craft for sure. But I think that if I honor my craft and live my life, I think those things converge in a really beautiful way. Well, yeah, it's sort of like, it's always happening. It's in some, in there's in some place inside of you, some part of it is always happening. It's just like the getting it down part, the, it exiting entering into out here yes yeah. i'm doing something with my hands to indicate the shape of something for listeners it's a shape the shape of something you know you're based in nashville currently and i know you moved there after having been in la for a while and did a bunch of that you know nashville songwriting sessions and it's such a beautiful history in music the methods that are very classic you know, if I'm understanding correctly of, of that situation, but it's yeah. very much its own specific thing. And it seems like my, I always imagine that as sort of like, it's like going to a certain kind of college, but you know, there's a good reason there's different sorts of colleges as well. Yeah. But as a songwriter interested in just the form and that some of the elements of it that are just classic form, I'm curious what you learned from that experience and sort of what you learned was what you don't really want to do what are some of the what are some of the lessons you apply that you're like that's good I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna keep that thanks Nashville and yeah. the things that you were like you know what I don't really want to be part of this factory yeah I think it's one of those things where you learn from all experiences whether they're good or bad and you learn from all co-writes whether they're good or bad and I think what I learned is I don't want to think too hard like I think that's where my sort of like I'm not going to talk about work all the time or think about work all the time or, you know, have a, you know, I'm not going to like have this sort of like constant running mentality, you know, picking the leaves for inspiration. Um, I think for me, I want, I want to just know that inspiration is everywhere and sort of like it, make sure that my basket is out to catch whatever I need. 
but I do want to care about the craft of things. Like I'm not a, I'm not a magician. Like I, I don't like have this like massive, like spiritual moment. That's like 10 minutes where I like form a song and then it's perfect. Like there is sort of that rush of inspiration. And then for me, there's like days and sometimes like weeks of little edits, you know, like things that like, I produce a little bit. So like, I'm trying to build the like music around what I've just written, but also like I'll sing something and I'll realize the word that I wrote doesn't sing as well as something else. So then I'll spend like a few minutes singing like eight different versions of a thing, trying to find what sings the easiest and smoothest. So yeah, I think that there's like a, there's a real care about like, both the story and the sense and the phrasing and how it reads, but also like the craft of a song and like its arc and its dynamic and the notes that you use. And I like from co-writing, especially in Nashville, I learned to like care about those things. And then it, you don't have to like labor over them. I'm not a, I like to work hard, but I like it. I'm like a work equal parts smart and hard. So you don't have to work too hard or too smart. <laughs> For me, it's like, I want to make something beautiful, but I want to make something human. Um, and I don't want to ever walk away from a song feeling like that feels like overthought or overwritten. Like if anything, I want it almost to feel raw. Like I'd rather someone go, whoa, I've never heard someone sing it like that or say it like that or like put it so plainly then have someone go, whoa, like that's the craziest, most confusing image I've ever heard, you know, and not know where we are. And that's the thing that, you know, we've been saying in this conversation, it's just like, I think it's so cool that you, you started from a place of being aware of that layer and trying to, you know, keep it to a minimum sort of for your own expression and the bridge that you've been describing. It's like, you know, as sort of a bridge to the outside world. It's like, you know, it's a bridge to yourself. <laughs> yeah, it's a bridge to me. <laughs> Thank you so much for getting together with me to talk. It's awesome to meet you. Thank you so much. All right. Well, that does bring us to the end of episode 98. Thanks again to Joy Olatacoon for that conversation. JoyOlatacoon.com to see all of their upcoming stuff. And if you want to follow along with the LSQ podcast, subscribe on whatever platforms offer that option. And you can also reach me on socials at JennyLSQ and find earlier episodes at JennyLSQ.com. Thanks again for listening.